The Mabinogion, Introduction, and Chapter One from Bullfinch's The Age of Chivalry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Age of Chivalry by Thomas Bullfinch. The Mabinogion, Introductory Note, and Chapter One The Britons. The Mabinogion, Introductory Note. It has been well known to the literati and antiquarians of Europe that there exist in the great public libraries voluminous manuscripts of romances and tales once popular, but which, on the invention of printing, had already become antiquated, and fallen into neglect. They were therefore never printed, and seldom perused even by the learned, until about half a century ago, when attention was again directed to them and they were found very curious monuments of ancient manners, habits, and modes of thinking. Several have since been edited, some by individuals, as Sir Walter Scott and the poet Southey, others by antiquarian societies. The class of readers which could be counted on for such publications was so small that no inducement of profit could be found to tempt editors and publishers to give them to the world. It was therefore only a few, and those the most accessible, which were put in print. There was a class of manuscripts of this kind which were known, or rather suspected, to be both curious and valuable, but which it seemed almost hopeless to expect ever to see in fair printed English. These were the Welsh popular tales called Mabinogion, a plural word, the singular being Mabinogi, a tale. Manuscripts of these were contained in the Bodleian Library at Oxford and elsewhere, but the difficulty was to find translators and editors. The Welsh is a spoken language among the peasantry of Wales, but is entirely neglected by the learned, unless they are natives of the principality. Of the few Welsh scholars none were found who took sufficient interest in this branch of learning to give these publications to the English public. Southey and Scott, and others, who, like them, loved the old romantic legends of their country, often urged upon the Welsh literati the duty of reproducing the Mabinogion. Southey, in the preface of his edition of Morted Arthur, says, The specimens which I have seen are exceedingly curious, nor is there a greater desideratum in British literature than an edition of these tales, with a literal version, and such comments as Mr. Davies, of all men, is best qualified to give. Certain it is that many of the round-table fictions originated in Wales, or in Britannia, and probably might still be traced there. Again, in a letter to Sir Charles W. W. Wynn, dated 1819, he says, I begin almost to despair of ever seeing more of the Mabinogion, and yet if some competent Welshman could be found to edit it carefully, with as literal a version as possible, I am sure it might be made worth his while by a subscription, printing a small edition at a high price, perhaps two hundred at five guineas. I myself would gladly subscribe at that price per volume for such an edition of the whole of your genuine remains in prose and verse. Till some such collection is made, the gentlemen of Wales ought to be prohibited from wearing a leek, aye, and interdicted from toasted cheese also. Your bards would have met with better usage if they had been Scotchmen. Sharon Turner and Sir Walter Scott also expressed a similar wish for the publication of the Welsh manuscripts. The former took part in an attempt to effect it, through the instrumentality of a Mr. Owen, a Welshman, but we judge, by what Southey says of him, imperfectly acquainted with English. Southey's language is William Owen lent me three parts of the Mabinogion, 
delightfully translated into so Welsh an idiom and syntax, that such a translation is as instructive as an original. In another letter he adds, Let Sharon make his language grammatical, but not alter their idiom in the slightest point. It is probable Mr. Owen did not proceed far in an undertaking which, so executed, could expect but little popular patronage. It was not till an individual should appear possessed of the requisite knowledge of the two languages, of enthusiasm sufficient for the task, and of pecuniary resources sufficient to be independent of the booksellers and of the reading public, that such a work could be confidently expected. Such an individual has, since Southey's day and Scott's, appeared in the person of Lady Charlotte Guest, an English lady, united to a gentleman of property in Wales, who, having acquired the language of the principality, and become enthusiastically fond of its literary treasures, has given them to the English reader, in a dress which the printer's and the engraver's arts have done their best to adorn. In four royal octavo volumes containing the Welsh originals, the translation, and ample illustrations from French, German, and other contemporary and affiliated literature, the Mabinogion is spread before us. To the antiquarian and the student of language, and ethnology, an invaluable treasure, yet it can hardly in such a form win its way to popular acquaintance. We claim no other merit than that of bringing it to the knowledge of our readers, of abridging its details, of selecting its most attractive portions, and of faithfully preserving throughout the style in which Lady Guest has clothed her legends. For this service we hope that our readers will confess we have laid them under no light obligation. CHAPTER One, THE BRITONS the earliest inhabitants of Britain are supposed to have been a branch of that great family known in history by the designation of Celts. Cambria, which is a frequent name for Wales, is thought to be derived from Cymru, the name which the Welsh traditions apply to an immigrant people who entered the island from the adjacent continent. This name is thought to be identical with those of Cimmerians and Cimbri, under which the Greek and Roman historians describe a barbarous people, who spread themselves from the north of the Euxine over the whole of northwestern Europe. The origin of the names Wales and Welsh has been much canvassed. Some writers make them a derivation from Gael or Gaul, which names are said to signify woodlanders. Others observe that Walsh, in the northern languages, signifies a stranger, and that the aboriginal Britons were so called by those who, at a later era, invaded the island and possessed the greater part of it, the Saxons and Angles. The Romans held Britain from the invasion of Julius Caesar till their voluntary withdrawal from the island, A.D. 420, that is, about five hundred years. In that time there must have been a wide diffusion of their arts and institutions among the natives. The remains of roads, cities, and fortifications show that they did much to develop and improve the country, while those of their villas and castles prove that many of the settlers possessed wealth and taste for the ornamental arts. Yet the Roman sway was sustained chiefly by force, and never extended over the entire island. The northern portion, now Scotland, remained independent, and the western portion, constituting Wales and Cornwall, was only nominally subjected. Neither did the later invading hordes succeed in subduing the remoter sections of the island. For ages after the arrival of the Saxons under Hengist and Horsa, A.D. 449, the whole western coast of Britain was possessed by the aboriginal inhabitants, engaged in constant warfare with the invaders. It has, therefore, been a favourite boast of the people of Wales and Cornwall, that the original British stock flourishes in its unmixed purity only among them. 
we see this notion flashing out in poetry occasionally, as when Gray, in The Bard, prophetically describing Queen Elizabeth, who was of the Tudor, a Welsh race, says, Her eye proclaims her of the Britain line, and, contrasting the princes of the Tudor with those of the Norman race, he exclaims, All hail, ye genuine kings, Britannia's issue, hail. THE WELSH LANGUAGE AND LITERATURE The Welsh language is one of the oldest in Europe. It possesses poems, the original of which is referred with probability to the sixth century. The language of some of these is so antiquated that the best scholars differ about the interpretation of many passages. But generally speaking, the body of poetry, which the Welsh possess, from the year one thousand downwards, is intelligible to those who are acquainted with the modern language. Till within the last half-century these compositions remained buried in the libraries of colleges or of individuals, and so difficult of access that no successful attempt was made to give them to the world. This reproach was removed after ineffectual appeals to the patriotism of the gentry of Wales, by Owen Jones, a furrier of London, who at his own expense collected and published the chief productions of Welsh literature, under the title of the Mervurian Archaeology of Wales. In this task he was assisted by Dr. Owen and other Welsh scholars. After the cessation of Jones's exertions the old apathy returned, and continued till within a few years. Dr. Owen exerted himself to obtain support for the publication of the Mabinogian, or Prose Tales of the Welsh, but died without accomplishing his purpose, which has since been carried into execution by Lady Charlotte Guest. The legends which fill the remainder of this volume are taken from this work, of which we have already spoken more fully in the introductory chapter to the first part. THE WELSH BARDS The authors to whom the oldest Welsh poems are attributed are Anurian, who is supposed to have lived A.D. 500 to 550, and Taliesin, Thowarken, Thowark the Aged, and Merdin, or Merlin, who were a few years later. The authenticity of the poems which bear their names has been assailed, and it is still an open question how many and which of them are authentic, though it is hardly to be doubted that some are so. The poem of Anurian, entitled the Gododin, bears very strong marks of authenticity. Anurin was one of the northern Britons of Strathclyde, who have left that part of the district they inhabited the name of Cumberland, or Land of the Cymry. In this poem he laments the defeat of his countrymen by the Saxons at the Battle of Catrich, in consequence of having partaken too freely of the mead before joining in combat. The bard himself and two of his fellow warriors were all who escaped from the field. A portion of this poem has been translated by Gray, of which the following is an extract. To Catrach's vale, in glittering row, twice two hundred warriors go, every warrior's manly neck, chains of regal honour deck, wreathed in many a golden link, from the golden cup they drink, nectar that the bees produce, or the grape's exalted juice. Flushed with mirth and hope they burn, but none to Cathrich's vale return, save Aaron the brave and Conan strong, bursting through the bloody throng, and I the meanest of them all, that live to weep and sing their fall. The works of Taliesin are of much more questionable authenticity. There is a story of the adventures of Taliesin so strongly marked with mythical traits as to cast suspicion on the writings attributed to him. This story will be found in the subsequent pages. THE TRIADS The triads are a peculiar species of poetical composition, of which the Welsh bards have left numerous examples. 
they are enumerations of a triad of persons, or events, or observations, strung together in one short sentence. This form of composition, originally invented in all likelihood to assist the memory, has been raised by the Welsh to a degree of eloquence, of which it hardly at first sight appears susceptible. The triads are of all ages, some of them probably as old as anything in the language. Short as they are individually, the collection in the Mavurian archaeology occupies more than one hundred and seventy pages of double columns. We will give some specimens, beginning with personal triads, and giving the first place to one of King Arthur's own composition. I have three heroes in battle, Mel the Tall, and Thyr with his army, and Caradoc the Pillar of Wales. The three principal bards of the island of Britain, Merlin Ambrose, Merlin the son of Morfin, called also Merlin the Wild, and Taliesin the chief of the bards. The three golden-tongued knights of the court of Arthur, Gawain son of Guar, Drudvas son of Triffin, and Ewad son of Magad up Uther. The three honourable feasts of the island of Britain, the feast of Caswallon, after repelling Julius Caesar from this isle, the feast of Aurelius Ambrosius, after he had conquered the Saxons, and the feast of King Arthur, at Carleon-upon-Usk. Guinevere, the daughter of Lagodian the giant, bad when little, worse when great. Next follow some moral triads. Hast thou heard what Drumheddick sung, an ancient watchman on the castle walls? A refusal is better than a promise unperformed. Hast thou heard what Lenwig sung, the noble chief wearing the golden torques? The grave is better than a life of want. Hast thou heard what Garslet sung, the Irishman whom it is safe to follow? Sin is bad if long pursued. Hast thou heard what Avon sung, the son of Taliesin of the recording verse? The cheek will not conceal the anguish of the heart. Didst thou hear what Lowark sung, the intrepid and brave old man? Greet kindly, though there be no acquaintance. End of section 24